Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And we are super excited about this week's interview. Oh my God, you're going to love this week's interview so much. Jabari Brisport is a brand new member of the New York State Senate. And he has already staked a claim to being one of the most thoughtful, knowledgeable, and progressive politicians in the country, not just in New York State. And not only when it comes to animals, though definitely when it comes to animals, but you are just going to love this interview so much. This is a whole new world. And it's giving us so much hope. Yeah, he totally gave me hope. I, I mean, I just he, I can't even believe he's a politician because he's so badass. Anyway, on the Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Senator Brisport. So as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on Tuesday. And you can also find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock, consider joining, if you're able to, at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. It's $10 a month or $100 a year. And we're still doing our Flock Fridays. If you are a member of the Flock or you become a member of the Flock, I hope you can join us. They are Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern every Friday. And sometimes we have guests and and sometimes we just talk about stuff. Last, last time we talked about, we had kind of a show and tell about, about activism. It was really, really good. A yeah. lot of art, a lot of people, either other people's art or their own art. We always end up talking about how to shift our activism as well as how to take care of ourselves in these times and actually in any time. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get to the interview, there were a few things we wanted to chat about. Let's just take a moment to sort of uh, acknowledge the fact that the wonderful Cloris Leachman left us this week, which was so sad. Yeah, I, I mean, some of you probably, if you're younger, you may not even know her, but... I love Cloris Leachman. She was well known for being on the Mary Tyler Moore show years and years ago, but also in a lot of Mel Brooks movies. And she was a passionate, passionate animal activist and and vegan and one of the funniest women on the planet. Well, one of the funniest people on the planet. Also, we lost Cicely Tyson this week. And I actually did not know. I mean, I love Cicely Tyson. I loved her acting. But I did not know until I saw her obits that she was vegan. Some said vegetarian, some said vegan, but... Uh, you know, I, I don't know her, her reasons, but um, she did say in one interview that she went vegetarian after Martin Luther King was killed, which just made me feel that there was something, something political about it. Anyway, yeah. also just a, a wonderful actress and two women in their 90s, uh, you know, really an era, yeah. an era passing. You know, when I was reading about Cicely Tyson, I was reading her obit in The New York Times and like two weeks before the obit, the New York Times had run an interview with her, which I was like, oh, so I decided to read that. Well, in addition to the obit, but it was just so lovely to she had such a great energy and joie de vivre. And I just I would love to get that for myself because I'm usually just irritable and cranky. Yeah, you are. So <laughs> that would be a good idea. Maybe this will be an inspiration. And I think everyone should should watch Young Frankenstein this week is a salute to Cloris Leachman. Mm, good idea. So funny. All right. Another horrible, horrible thing that and another, se several deaths that happened this week uh, was this incident in Georgia at a poultry plant in Georgia where six workers died after there was a liquid nitrogen release. And it just brought, I mean, of course, whenever these things happen, it brings up so many feelings. But I, but. I noticed it in particular because I saw several posts 
on on you know some fucking social media crap <laughs> that that said not that the posts were crap but criticizing vegans for taking pleasure in the deaths of these workers huh? which i don't you know i didn't see any of the original posts or i don't know whether, whether there were original posts or they just assumed that would happen because it certainly has always happened in the past i'm surprised that it's still I was actually really surprised that it's still happening. And I was wondering, like, that really, do people really act so stupid that that they would take pleasure in, in these workers, these poor people who have to work at these horrible places? It made me start thinking about a whole lot of things mm -hmm. about, you know, because I think we've all been thinking about how animal activism fits in to all of the activism that's going on now among, the, you know, and certainly all of the deaths in the slaughterhouses of people during outbreaks of COVID-19 has made us think about the same things. And, you know, of course, I don't want workers in slaughterhouses to die. They're, I mean, of course, they are working horrible, horrible jobs and it's, nothing is their fault. They're just trying to stay alive like the rest of us. They may not be on our side, but they're they're hardly the enemy. Uh, you know, Mr. Tyson or whoever are the principles are the enemy, I would say, and they never get near the floor of the slaughterhouse. Right. But it did bring up this whole, uh, you know, series of thoughts about this is going to be a time of unbelievable social change. I think everybody knows that. Like things are just, it already is. I mean, all the Black Lives Matter protests this summer and just the spirit of the country, people feel understandably extremely aggrieved and there's going to be changes. And how do you keep animals in that mm -hmm. without acting like all you care about is animals. You don't care about people. But how do you avoid the fact that animals frequently do get left behind? Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, I have noticed it. And I don't know the messaging here. I don't know the right way to move forward. I, I feel really passionately about a lot of different social justice issues. And when I'm in, when I'm in other social justice areas that aren't animal rights, I feel really out and proud about being vegan. And when I'm in animal rights circles, I feel really out and proud about being a lesbian and about being an anti-racist. And I think all we can do is like move forward with authenticity and integrity to the animals and to all of the many individuals who are oppressed as a result of the highly, highly toxic animal agriculture industry that impacts so many, so many individuals. And, and to not forget about the animals in the process, because then we're kind of becoming somewhat speciesist as well as as all of the other isms that we inhabit as we continue to oppress marginalized individuals. So how how do we how do we accomplish this? I think we stand in our truth as animal protection advocates who are also many other things hopefully including anti-racist and many other activist identifications, but let's not forget about the animals along the way because they're suffering and they're dying and I I do think that they're being left out of the equation. It doesn't have to be an either or. Yeah, exactly. And I think it gets really, this is an area where it gets really hard. I mean, most of us are used to being the one person in the room who, or one of the few people in the room who bring up the animals. But I think that gets really more difficult when everybody else in the particular room you're in is fighting for social justice, but they are leaving the animals out. And it's very easy to be seen as a person who, who only cares about animals. And who does, I mean, it, it's also easy to be seen as, as a person who doesn't care about the workers because those workers, you know, are not vegan and those workers may like 
be supportive of the chicken industry. And that doesn't mean we want them to die. And it doesn't mean that we're not strongly in favor of human rights in, and social justice in all those areas. But I do feel that there can be a lot of pressure to like downplay the animals in times like these. And it's a delicate march. Uh, but, you know, we we do that all the time. When you were originally talking about it a few minutes ago, I, I kept thinking in my head of the saying, don't shoot the messenger. And, you know, in this case, if you give yourself creative license to interpret that saying a little bit more broadly, the messenger in this case might be the slaughterhouse worker and don't shoot him because, you know, in a lot of ways, he's just part of this really oppressed system. And, well, yeah. and, and that's actually something that Senator... Brisport and I discussed a little bit in the interview because he, like us, is very multi-pronged in his approach to social justice. And you'll see that he fights he fights hard for animals, but he's also very involved with a multiplicity of other movements. And I found him so inspiring. This is a perfect conversation. I hadn't planned it that way, but a perfect conversation to to introduce this uh, speaker and to think, as, as you were just pointing out, to think always of the intersections between these issues. When the animals are oppressed... There are generally people oppressed along with them, and we know that's true of animal agriculture. So so let's get to that interview, because you guys probably are, had a great conversation about it. So Senator Jabari in Brisport is a Democratic Socialist, and he represents New York's 25th State Senate District. And until becoming the first LGBTQ plus person of color to serve in New York's legislature, he was a public school math teacher. Don't you just love that? Mm-hmm. So Senator Brisport became an activist more than a decade ago when he began organizing efforts in support of a bill to legalize same-sex marriage in New York and continued his activism as part of the early Black Lives Matter movement. He has also been a vegan and animal rights advocate for many years and believes that all living creatures are deserving of dignity and legal protections. And he'll be joining Jasmine right after this. I'm so excited. Hi, our Hen House gang. I'm Kimberly Carroll from Animal Justice in Canada, and we're doing a really exciting new project that I thought you folks might be interested in because you all like learning cool stuff and you like good vibes. It's called Animal Justice Academy, and it's a free six-week online advocacy boot camp to empower people to make a better world for animals. We've got over 80 teachers and speakers in this program sharing about taking your animal advocacy game to the next level through things like political engagement, effective communication, media skills, intersectionality approaches, resilience building tools, and identifying the particular skills and style that will help you make a bigger impact for animals. So far, we've got almost 5,000 people enrolled in the program, and we are having such an amazing time. So many aha moments, nurturing community building, and some powerful collective action. You can join us by signing up at animaljusticeacademy.com. Hope to see you in there. Welcome to our Hen House, Senator. Pleasure to be here, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you. We've all been excited for so long. And you just got elected to the New York State Senate, so mazel tov. I'm so excited. I'm also, I'm a New York resident, so I'm even more excited. Tell us a bit about your district and why you were the right candidate at the right time. So my district is the 25th State Senate District. That's in Brooklyn. It's like central Brooklyn, all of Bedford-Stuyvesant. It's Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Prospect Heights, where I grew up, it is also stretching out onto like the coast with Red Hook and little bits of Industrial Sunset Park. There's a, a touches a bunch of neighborhoods, and I was the right candidate because 
um, our district and our community was really struggling, you know, from multiple forces, over-policing, from a housing crisis, from lack of um, quality education or lack of well-funded education. And we needed somebody that would stand up to um, the powers that be politically or, you know, financially and say that we needed to uh, restructure the way we look at our society around people's needs and not profits. And throughout your campaign, you were very open about your strong support for animal rights and and your veganism, which is refreshing. Can you describe how you communicated with people about that issue? And do you think that this hurt or helped you? I think it only helped me. I mean, I am a, you know, proud been vegan for about eight years now and got politically involved for animals, I think, and started first time in 2016. So a few years now. And, you know, that's exciting for people because there are not many vocal vegans or animal rights people who run for, who run for office. And uh, it, it drew more people into the campaign and did not, you know, turn anyone away. And I think people saw that, you know, this is something that, you could tie into a variety of issues. You know, you lift up animals, you end up lifting up, um, you know, the most marginalized as well. That's right. Yeah, I remember I interviewed Cory Booker about his veganism and animal rights. And he was, he said that it, first of all, he didn't care if it hurt him or so he said to me. But secondly, it seemed to help him. It seemed to like kind of create a platform for discussing all of the issues that he cared about. Yeah, you know, um, I had a lovely opportunity to join a Black Veg Fest. It's like, you know, um, awesome, awesome, great. Uh, it's, it's what it is. It's a, you know, big vegan fest centering Black voices um, run by Black people, predominantly Black women. And I got a chance to talk about the intersectionality of animal rights and, and human rights and, you know, how when we allow for the worst injustices to be done to animals, we open the door for bigots and fascists to do the same, turn around and do the same thing to people. Whether that's, you know, branding, you know, an, an animal versus branding, you know, a human animal or, you know, locking up animals in cages versus locking up people in, in cages. You know, it, it's all, it, it. whenever we don't fight for the, the most marginalized, we end up harming ourselves. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Black Veg Fest. We had the organizer on our hen house in the past. No, you are a democratic socialist, and that certainly relates to many of your positions on social justice issues. But I'm curious about animals specifically. Is your attitude toward animals a natural outgrowth of other issues with which you are aligned? It, it's it's definitely happened in parallel with my political activism. You know, I, I first went vegetarian around 12, 13 uh, years ago, um, around the time when I first started getting politically active in um you know, the gay rights movement. And, you know, as, I, as I've gotten more politically active, I, I've also seen that I need to get more politically active for the animals. I, like I said, I, I said I was a vegan for, you know, many years, but not an animal rights activist until just four years ago because I, I started to realize that, you know, veganism couldn't just be a dietary choice. It, it had to be a, a political choice as well. You know, I, I got tired of, of thinking it was enough to make sure my own personal plate was free of, of animal cruelty. And I realized I needed to, to go bigger and, and organize with other animal rights activists. Well, that's thrilling to hear. I too 
joined, joined. It's not like I got a club card, but I joined the animal rights movement by way of the LGBTQ movement and the LGBTQ beginnings of my journey definitely informed the way I go about my animal rights activism for the past 17 years. So I think there is like a sort of natural route from one to the other. And and once we start to recognize the ways that we're marginalizing certain communities arbitrarily because of these like mindsets such as you are here for my youth or I can do what I want to you. It's like a natural progression to begin. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that perspective. And do you expect the Democratic Socialist Party and some of its iconic representatives, such as Bernie Sanders and AOC, to expand their thinking regarding justice for animals? I mean, I think it's only inevitable. I I, I do remember, you know, a lot of socialists and, and, um, or vegans getting upset with Bernie for, you know, really supporting the dairy industry. I'm no fan of the dairy industry. The dairy industry is no fan of me. <laughs> but I, I do think that as you dive deeper into these, you, you start to realize how all connected it is. Like, you know, I, I did not always start out as a socialist. I progressive, lefty liberal, and ultimately realized that those, the, my, the ideals that I wanted for society could not be achieved under capitalism, but, you know, a democratic socialism instead. And I, you know, I imagine people dig deeper, they start to see that, you know, to be truly consistent, you know, in their ethics, uh, you know, they really are fighting for the marginalized and, you know, av- avoiding f- the manipulation of others or causing others suffering for, for their own personal gain. It, I think it inevitably leads to, to veganism. Yes, I ho- I sure hope so. And Vermont and dairy, oy vey. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, it shouldn't be a tough one, but my mother lives in Vermont. And I, whenever I go up there, it's like, I mean, you practically get like milk splattered on you as you cross over the state line. I don't know what that is about, but it's nice that Ben and Jerry's is joining the dairy yeah. free bandwagon. It's amazing. Yeah. Actually, the left in general has been somewhat notoriously slow to champion the cause of animals, at least according to many animal rights folks. Why do you think that is, assuming you agree? And perhaps it's not yet shifting for Bernie, but is it shifting? I think it is shifting. I I think that the reason why there's hesitancy is that some people have managed to create a false wedge and pit animal rights against human rights or labor rights. And, you know, if, if you're a uh, pro animal right, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a vegan, you must uh, love uh, acai berries and, and in quinoa and you're, and you're destroying indigenous communities in, in South America for, for your pursuit of pursuit of those or, or something like that, or, you know, us vegans. And I, I guess vegans are the ones that eat palm oil and that's, that's what's destroying Indonesia. Um, <laughs> these are arguments, you know, I, I, I've heard, and it's important for us to realize, you know, especially, you know, as, as socialists that want to uplift um, labor rights, like some of the most violent labor rights, like violations happen within the animal industry, like, you know, step foot in inside a slaughterhouse, like the, the workers that are there are not are not white guys in button down and suits. Right. It, it's migrant workers that are risking their lives in, in danger of 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 getting maimed or killed by the machines. And it's 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 quite violence. Or, you know, I always mention just poorer black communities in the South, like, you know, where they're pig farms where, you know, they just spray, they spray the, the pig shit into the air and it wafts down into low-income community. Like, you know, the harms of the animal agriculture industry are, are deeply inter, intertwined with harms against um, marginalized uh, human animals. Hmm. 
I want to go back to something you touched on earlier, uh, just regarding your LGBTQ activism. You were part of the fight for same-sex marriage in New York State, which is something that I benefited from. So thank you. (laughs) Can you tell us how that fight and ongoing efforts to defend queer people and particularly queer people of color relate to your fighting for animals? I know you started to touch on that, but it's something that is, I think, of a lot of interest to our Hen House listeners in particular. Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned from the fight for for same-sex marriage was that you have to be very clear in your demand and not back down even when you lose. And I say that because I remember that was my first big political loss was 2009 when the state Senate was coming to a vote on same-sex marriage. And I had never liked called or organized people to do anything. And I had put a lot of effort into it. And then we lost, you know, the state Senate did not vote for same-sex marriage. And me thinking I was a rational um, activist said, well, we should switch gears and we, you know what, same-sex marriage will never pass. We should all focus on civil unions because that's what's reasonable and that's what we can attain. And people in the movement were not having that, right? They said, no, that's not equality. So we need to keep on pushing for exactly what we want. And you know, so I, I, we doubled down and lo and behold, two years later, we, we actually won. We won same-sex marriage in New York. And, and then it did go, it did go, you know, a federal a few years later. So that's tied into my politics of saying, like, I, I don't I don't moderate my positions, you know, from the get-go. I, I say exactly what I think we need for our society. And I keep advocating for that, even if it means losing the first time. I, I actually lost my first race <laughs> um, when I ran for office and came back again and, you know, bigger and bolder and, and and we won. And that ties to animals because, you know, I I, I am bold in saying something like, you know, I, I do think we need to push for an end to animal agriculture. You know, I it's, it's funny there I, I just discovered uh dairy Twitter um <laughs> the first time a few weeks ago and they, they've been uh, <laughs> circulating a clip of me from a few years ago saying that the dairy industry needs to uh needs to die. <laughs> and oh wow it's uh, it's important for me to say to to be very clear in you know uh, the positions because you know it's like they say about the arc of you know the arc of history the arc of moral justice you know it's 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 long, sorry the arc of history it's, it's long but it you know bends towards justice and I do see veganism and vegetarianism and, and animal rights and, and and all these things like starting to grow in popularity and it's important to just keep pushing because at some point you reach a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, that's funny about dairy Twitter. We like to call that rising anxieties. And we have a whole segment on the podcast called Rising Anxieties, where we report on what the opposition is saying about animal rights activists. We don't even have to provide much commentary because usually just like the title says it all. It's, it's comical, really. So, Senator, tell us some of your legislative priorities when it comes to animals, both both pie in the sky and the ones you have real hope for in the near term. So I think in the near term, uh, well, there's one that's going through the uh, state legislature now, which is you can loosely think of it as a puppy mill ban. But it's a, a ban on the sale of um, cats, dogs, and, and rabbits, I believe, in pet stores to encourage people to adopt, don't, don't shop. And I think that's going to pass. Beyond that, I would love to build a momentum that I'm seeing around the fashion industry and in getting away from fur. So a statewide ban on the sale of fur. I, I know the one that went through the city council a few years ago did not, did not ultimately pass. Um, and I was part of that fight. And 
as I said before, I'm always happy to come back again, bigger and better. So I know we lost at the city level, so let's just pass it for the whole state um, and then the sale of fur throughout. And then um, I, I think the biggest reason why the dairy industry hates me is that I, I um I have not drafted the legislation yet, but I have proposed a way to shift dairy farmers off of dairy. It's We call it like a just transition program, but it would basically take the money that currently goes into subsidies and use it to help dairy farmers transition into using their farmland for basically anything else, right? If they want to grow a, a non-dairy milk, sure, or they maybe they just want to grow hemp or, you know, if we legalize marijuana, they want to they grow wheat, you know, but it would be funding to help them transition. And I, I think many can get on, on board with that since... The dairy industry is cratering, and um, I think many want to leave the industry but don't have the means or the ability to do so. Well, that's exciting. I would wear that proudly, the the dislike of the dairy industry. I know you also, you want, I have on my list here that you also want to outlaw cruel animal farming practices and teach humane education in schools and end classroom incubation projects. I, I read that you want to ban travel, traveling rodeos from performing in New York and cease the slaughter of animals in live markets and ban wildlife killing contests. So you are a man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. I moved here. Uh, well, I, I was living in LA for the last four years and specifically I was living in West Hollywood where fur was banned. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, <laughs> if it could happen in the land of the rich and famous and fabulous, you know, then it could happen there. So Senator, you just got put on the agriculture committee. <laughs> How did you pull that off? And what do you expect to be able to accomplish there? Um, well, I, I asked for it and I got it. And I, I do think a lot of things will move through that committee. I, I think especially this this uh, transition for, for dairy farmers out of the industry will will come through that. But also, um, you know, anything dealing with like hunting or, you know, the way that uh, animals are treated on, on farms themselves, uh, I think will move through that committee. And I'm excited to be a vocal advocate for them there. And then, yeah, that is that is going back to that's that's. I think that was the first time the dairy, dairy twinner got mad. They're like, "What is what is that vegan doing on the agriculture committee? Who did this?" <laughs> yeah, what do they think about you on the committee? <laughs> they they think I'm a threat to the dairy industry, and I, I am a vegan that thinks that we need to reach a world uh, where we have moved beyond animal agriculture. So they can see me as a threat, or they can see me as a partner to help them do something more ethical. I just interviewed Miyoko Shinner and she was talking about ways that she is trying to create programs to help dairy farmers to transition into plant-based agriculture and to really incentivize them and give them all of the tools they need. So I think there are some, you know, powerful forces out there who are not only, you know, trying to bring dairy down, which we we don't need to help them do that. They're doing that all by themselves, but to really help boost them up so that they can also thrive and create a much more sustainable platform in, in plant-based agriculture. Yeah, I agree. So do you think that given the difficulties that dairy is facing, there is a real possibility with government support of ending the industry while still providing this safe landing for dairy farmers? I, I do think that we need vocal vegan voices in that conversation because what has been the status quo is that the dairy industry is dairy, dairy industry has been failing for a while now, but the status quo has been to say, oh, well, we'll just give them more money. 
you know, we'll throw more money at the problem, more tax credits, more, you know, bailouts, more, more this, more that. And it comes a time to say that if we're giving them money, let's give them money to transition. You know, we, we, we wouldn't give money to the typewriter industry just because, you know, computers and laptops came around, you know, people are moving on and like consumers are moving on, but also the industry is just, I think, not sustainable anymore. And, you know, we need to help the workers move on as well. And, and also just, you know, even just thinking about their own mental health there, you know, dairy suicides are on the rise because they, they cannot make a living. And I, I think we have an obligation, not just to the animals, but also to the workers who are truly struggling and want to escape from this industry. Absolutely. I, I spoke with, that was one of the things I spoke with Miyoko about was the, the increase in suicide rates amongst dairy farmers. So yeah, we need a multi-pronged approach for sure. And I, I had mentioned this, I had touched on this earlier, but you are in strong support of humane education in schools, which is of course mandated in New York, but frequently not actually implemented. As a former public school teacher, what are your thoughts about the best ways to introduce children to the reality of how we treat animals? You know, uh, my my students got introduced to me just because they... they... <laughs> They saw me eating lunch. They're like, what is that? And I was like, well, this is, you know, a tofu this or this lentil this. And they, you know, found out I was vegan. And we're, children are so naturally curious. And, you know, that was almost enough for, for some of them because they started to look more. They were like, why are you vegan? I was like, well, I don't, you know, I do it for the animals. I don't think we should be eating animals. And some have told me they want to experiment with it or, or, or try it. Just and it's, and it's like such a light touch like that because it doesn't take much to convince it's, it's much easier to convince children of the right thing to do than um, adults. Uh, and that's one of the most beautiful things about being a teacher is that, you know, you just need to show them the truth. And that, that can be, that's, that's how I became vegetarian. Actually, I was in, I was in a classroom in college where the, um, the teacher showed us some, some slaughterhouse videos. And I realized that I couldn't, it wasn't totally random. I was, it was a class about animals and it was a class about animals in performance in theater but we had a day where we watched slaughterhouse videos and I, I realized, yeah, I, I could not, I couldn't partake in that industry anymore. And I, I went vegetarian shortly after that. Wow. I'm so curious about why that was shown, especially if it wasn't a class about like, you know, animal rights or ethics. I mean, I'm thrilled that it was, but like, can you tell me more about the context of the class and why that was the video that was that was yeah, shown. and you know, in retrospect, I it had I don't think it had much to do with the scope of the class, which was I, I studied theater in, in college, and this was a specific class that was like animals in theater. So we like would read plays about animals or a plays where like there was an animal, um, and there's just a variety of things. And there was one there was one class where we just watched slaughterhouse videos, and I, I don't I can't not remember. I don't think it was connected to any of the plays. The teacher was a, a vegetarian, or you know potentially a vegan, um, and. Yeah, you know there were there were other vegans in the class, and I, after, honestly, after seeing those videos, I, I, I did not want to eat meat anymore. Senator, I was also a theater major. Where did you go? <laughs> I went to NYU. Okay, I was at Pace. Oh, awesome! A little bit, a little bit further downtown from you, by a few blocks. That's awesome. That's very funny. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if there's some kind of connection between going into theater, which is when when you are really studying character, you really have to embrace their, you know, the empathy side of things and like the compassion for the character and then kind of going down the path of activism. I don't know. I mean, I think 
I mean, I think there is. I mean, I, I think a lot of a lot of actors almost end up political, whether they they want to or not, whether or not you know maybe they run for office or maybe they're just involved in their in their local community. But yeah, no, I, I think it, it's hard to take on the empathy of of theater and not feel like you need to do something about the world around you as well. That just gave me chills. I I have I've never really thought about it like that before, but it's it's true, isn't it? Whew. Well, one would imagine that climate will quickly become a legislative priority. At least we must hope so. How do you expect that to intersect with animals when legislating at the state level? I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that animal agriculture is a huge driver of greenhouse gases and, and- carbon emissions or, well, methane emissions, I guess, technically, with the cow farts. But I, I do see it becoming more part of the conversation. I actually was just giving, like, I was giving, um, like, commendations to, to Food and Water Watch uh, when I was running on the campaign because they were the only environmental group uh, where in their questionnaire they they brought up factory farming and animal agriculture. I was just like, you know, whether or not you in, endorse me, like, thank you so much for including this because a lot of environmental groups do not even, you know, mention animal agriculture. And, you know, I, I think it needs, we need to keep making sure it's part of the conversation because, you know, it's definitely part of the problem. Hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to. I mean, I like, I actually really appreciate Greta Thunberg's positioning on this and her messaging on this when she's like, don't look to my generation to fix this. You did this. You fixed this. And I'm like, you go, girl. That's right. So you are also the new chair of the Children and Families Committee. What is the work of that committee? And does it relate to animals in any way? It can. I mean, the the main things that have gone through that, that committee have been ensuring that, you know, marginalized children and families are kept whole. So a lot of foster care issues go through that. A lot of school, like, you know, juvenile justice things go through there. And there was one bill my predecessor was pushing, which I loved, which was called Solutions, Not Suspensions. And it was a way to you know, decrease and eliminate suspensions for for young kids um, in, in in schools. You know, really, really critical. You know, well, a lot of you know trauma that happens later in life. You know, can be traced back to stuff that happened to you as a kid, whether that's your family being you know ripped apart or just you know how you were treated as a young kid in, in school. So I like that committee a lot, and especially because I you know I my district has seen a surge in, in gun violence in the midst of the COVID nineteen pandemic. It's, it, it contains that area of Brooklyn where. It, it has surged. And I'm of the belief that, you know, the path to picking up a gun starts way, like years, years before that, that child ever, ever, that person ever picks up a gun. It, you know, there is some trauma that that leads, that starts them starts on the path to there. And if we can ensure that they're taken care of as a child and and really made to feel whole and part of a community, we can, we can end gun violence. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that this moment in time with the end of the Trump administration and so many challenges facing us is a watershed moment when we can shift out of old mindsets and make real progress? And do you think that extends to animals? I, I, I really do. I mean, you know, we have, you know, a new new presidency. Biden is actually surprising me. I mean, I, I did not expect him to send a letter, you know, and ending private prisons. That, that I, I, I am... So thankful to all the activists that, you know, and people on the ground that and moved him to, to, towards doing that. And when you say watershed, like, yeah, like this is a chance for us to really, really push from some incredible gains. And in addition to the stretch in the, the presidential administration in New York itself, for the first time ever, we have a, a veto proof majority in the state house, uh, the state assembly, excuse me, and also the uh, state senate. Um, and that is 
going to open up the path for a lot more, much more progressive legislation. I'm also going to add to that, like, you know, I think people at large are ready for this stuff. You know, uh, my friend and activist and lawyer, uh, Jay Schuster, wrote an article a couple of years ago, actually talking about saying, you know, America's actually ready for aggressive animal advocacy. And he started percentages of support of like how effective abolitionists were at the time compared to how many people were supporting slavery, you know, and he just like showed a lot of polls and showed that we're actually, we have pretty widespread support for banning slaughterhouses or, or making much more aggressive demands for animal rights than we are. Mm. Jay was a guest on our henhouse recently, I think more specifically on uh, uh, the Animal Law podcast, which we also produce. Big fan of his brain, for sure. He's incredible. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I'd love to shift gears in our last few minutes to some more personal matters, though I hope that you stay on with me, if you don't mind, for an additional little five-minute interview for our bonus content when we're done. Senator, tell us about how animal activism started for you. I know you mentioned that you were in the class and you saw the footage and you went vegan, but you said that you didn't go full on activist at the time. So was there like a moment where you thought, mm, I can't just be boycotting the cruelty on my plate? It was, that's funny you asked, specifically 2016, there was a big conference of various animal rights groups in New York, and I forget the name of it. And, you know, what's it's uh, funny to me in retrospect is that the, the stated goal was to bring animal rights groups together on, on shared goals and shared visions because apparently, you know, many organizers have felt there was too much division within the community. And I, I wasn't even in the community, so I didn't know anything about the division. I just saw all these amazing groups that were fighting for all these different things, chatting with each other. And I believe we signed letters. Um, I, I, I split off with one group to sign letters to a business to, you know, stop contracting with, a you know, some some nasty animal provider. And then just going back to Jay Schuster again, he actually invited me out to um, a protest that was going to be at Canada, Canada Goose, which was opening up a flagship store in Soho. And I went to the protest. I'd never, I'd never gone to an animal rights protest before. And I ended up speaking and I'd never spoken at an animal rights protest before. But, you know, that was a moment where I realized that this was something that people could band together and do, you know, which is really clear to me, okay, it's, it's not just a my personal choice on my plate, I can meet up with other people that believe in this and we can make political action for animals. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I love this vision of you kind of being thrust to like the podium at this <laughs> <Yeah>. protest. <laughs> That's cool. So you mentioned Jay, but beyond Jay, who are some of your influences either as animal rights activists and vegans or just as like change makers in general? I follow a lot of vegan bodybuilders on Instagram, um, which is very inspiring for me because, you know, they're they're doing it in that way by really dismantling, you know, notions of, of what entails masculinity and, you know, what exactly, you know, a vegan looks like. So incredible people like Nimai Delgado uh, is, you know, I follow John Venus a lot, even though he left veganism for a bit and, and, and then came back. But aside from that, um, I really am a fan of Oma Wale, who I, I think you said you had on for Black Veg Fest, who's also ripped. But um, I think, you know, people should know about his um, great, great political activism with, with Black Veg Fest and really finding intersections of black liberation and, and veganism. And, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from someone who I served with on, on VFAR, um, on Voters for Animal Rights, Allie Taylor who is an incredible activist in New York and just a powerhouse of, of fighting for the animals. And, you know, it, 
it is really great to draw inspiration from 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 people like that because it kind of keeps me centered in, in, in why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Also, just an incredible activist. I um, also was on our NS recently. So I'd love it if you would stick on with me for just a few more minutes for our bonus content. But for our main interview, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us at our hen house. And could you please tell us how we can follow you online and support your efforts? Sure. You can um, find me on Twitter at, uh, at Jabari Brisport. And you can email me at my Senate email, which is brisport at nysenate.gov. Thank you so much, Senator, for joining us today. I wish that there were more politicians who were on the side of the animals, but I am given a lot of hope that you are doing that. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Anxieties are rising. Warning, activists targeting plant employees. I love it when I find out from doing this segment on Anxieties Rising, but new things that animal activists are doing or are claimed to be doing. I'm not sure it's true or not. But uh, this is from the Animal Ag Watch column by Hannah Thompson-Weeman. And according to her, as the title points out, animal activists are targeting plant employees, i.e. they're trying to develop whistleblowers. And as she starts off saying, it may be a new year, but animal rights activists are up to their old tricks and learning some new ones. Hannah never, never misses an opportunity for a cliché. She's talking about whistleblower outreach efforts. She puts it in quotes, of course. And ALDF and Direct Action Everywhere are the two organizations that she points to that are trying to to work on getting workers to talk about what's going on inside, quote unquote, meat plants and factory farms. They claim to be working to help. This is a quote from Hannah. They claim to be working to help farm and plant employees report concerns about anything from animal welfare to COVID-19 protocols. But... In reality, their efforts are focused on finding new ways to get intel to support their long-running campaigns against animal agriculture. Well, yeah, those are the same things. <laughs> getting getting info on what's going on in animal welfare and COVID-19 is the same thing as finding new ways to campaign against animal agriculture. So that's a confusing sentence. 
She points out underhanded tactics, such as activists using social engineering. What the hell is social engineering? To strike up relationships with plant employees in order to get information. Um, online relationships she's talking about, some even romantic. Okay, you know, I have no evidence, so I'm not going to try to refute that. Bars, apparently everybody's willing to get COVID in order to do this. And trying to get employees to uh, seek out, to, to give them information about plant operations or get referrals for employment. And we have also heard, she says, recent reports of animal rights activists approaching plant employees with flyers soliciting participation in surveys or interviews. Wow, how underhanded, giving them flyers, <laughs> asking them to be interviewed. That's really sneaky. So uh, she's very upset about this, of course. One of the things she suggests is a confidentiality agreement. If your employees are under a confidentiality agreement, which they should be, isn't it interesting that every single low-level employee at a slaughterhouse or factory farm should be signing a confidentiality agreement? Wow. Make sure to offer reminders about the agreement <laughs> and that they should not be sharing proprietary information about your business with anyone. She's not talking about really proprietary information here. She's talking about illegalities, but, you know, what the hell. Don't share anything is basically the theme. Encourage workers to direct any inquiries they receive about participating in surveys or interviews about their job to management for vetting. The Alliance, i.e. the Animal Agriculture Alliance, can assist with this. Always there to help, that old Animal Ag Alliance. These efforts, she goes on to say, are not about hiding anything or avoiding transparency. <laughs> no, not at all. Of course not. It's about protecting your business. Doesn't it, isn't it about protecting your business from transparency? <laughs> what would be revealed if you were transparent? And the industry as a whole from groups who have demonstrated time and time again what their end goal is at ending animal agriculture and meat consumption and just how far they are willing to go for it. Break-ins, thefts, installing recording devices, impersonating company leaders, the list goes on. Well, actually what she's talking about here is trying to get some information. Not really on that list, but you know, whatever. All right. Also from Meeting Place, this is the Pearls and Pork column by Angie Krieger. Pearls and Pork. I don't know whether she actually has a high voice. I don't know why I think she does. Looking back, and there's nothing wrong with high voices. I should say that. It shouldn't be, I shouldn't be criticizing either appearance or sound. Looking back, the pandemic, pork proliferation, and plant protein players. That's really, that should be a uh, tongue twister. There's so many peas in there. All right. People still like meat, she says. She's looking back over the past year. They like options. And sometimes those options include alternative or plant-based proteins. Okay, cool. You read that right. I'm not having a heart attack over non-traditional players in the meat space. And then she proceeds to spend the rest of <laughs> basically having that heart attack. Because she, she wants to know why has the competition from alternative proteins rocked us to our core? She points out that, you know, they're not really taking over. But one of the reasons she says they aren't shy about their goal to eliminate us. Well, apparently the problem isn't only that that's their goal. The problem is that the meat industry might be a little scared that they're going to achieve it. And she does admit that sales remain small in this category compared to real meat. They're growing both their share of dollars and share of voice. They focus their consumer efforts on how eating those products makes people feel not only physically after they eat it, but how that meal decision helps that person or family contribute to society or make the world a better place. You get the picture. <laughs> I found that very funny. I don't know. 
Yeah. No, one of the things is, you know, how it makes you feel. But the reason that you feel good isn't like magic. It's because these things actually do contribute to society. And they tell you that and why. But, you know, she's not seeing it. She wants to know how they compete. And she points out that that regurgitating nutrition facts isn't working. And what what should we do? How do they connect with consumers? Simply put, this is not about science. It's about making an emotional connection with consumers who look much different today than 10 years ago. Interesting. Like, actually, it is about science and the feeling good. The emotional connection is based on the science and the facts. Missing the picture here. Missing the picture here, Angie. I guess I guess they kind of have to miss the picture, too, don't they? All right, this is an interesting one. Also from Meeting Place. We should be testing more, not less. This is from the Legally Speaking column by Sean Stevens. And he's always concerned about food safety, as well he should. He's talking about the swabathons that the FDA and increasingly the USDA have been doing in uh, meat plants, as we like to call them, or we don't like to call them. They come in and they collect at least 100 samples from drains, ducts, processing equipment, any other place pathogens might hide. I, You know, I wish they were doing a little bit more of that, but they apparently are doing it sometimes. And, quote, in the unfortunate event that a positive sample matches an illness or illnesses in the database, FTA will likely insist on a recall and or initiate other aggressive enforcement actions, even if the illnesses occurred years ago. What do you mean, even if the illnesses? Like, if the germs are there, they could occur again. (laughs) What does that mean? Maybe it means something. I don't know. Worse yet is the potential for criminal charges being brought against a company or its executives which is an additional risk that has become increasingly likely in recent years. I wonder why it's become increasingly likely. Is it because the FDA and the USDA have been so rigorously enforcing these laws under the Trump administration? Or is it because crimes are being committed? Well, I have no way of knowing. Of course, there may be risks. This is my favorite part. Of course, there may be risks associated with conducting this type of facility-wide investigation. And it is important to protect any potential and compromising information lest it be used against you by plaintiff lawyers or regulators, i.e. if you find these germs in your facility and you don't get rid of them and you make people sick, you could get sued, as well you should be. (laughs) To safeguard this type of information, companies can work with their attorneys who can direct the types and locations of sampling, thereby shielding the information through the use of the attorney-client privilege. Oh my God, like he's admitting here in print that they should like drag attorneys in and make them part of this process it just seemed to me like directing the types and locations of sampling shouldn't be done by lawyers. As a lawyer, I can tell you that's not something you learn in law school. They should maybe be done by the scientists, but no, get it done by the lawyers. And then you can pretend there's attorney-client privilege. And he's admitting this. What? That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. 
and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.